Hi and welcome back to the Leads in Language and Literature podcast with me, Chris Jordan. In today's episode, I had the great privilege of speaking to Paul Farley. Paul is a poet originally from Liverpool who has won multiple awards for his work, including the Sunday Times Young Writer of the Year. He's a member of the Royal Society of Literature and has also had the esteemed honour of teaching me creative writing in his post as professor at Lancaster University. In the episode, we discuss poets he believes are most worthy of study in state-educated classrooms, the inspiration he takes from the Northamptonshire peasant poet John Clare, the IB's decision to include musicians in their prescribed reading list as poets, and whether this suggests poetry has a waning influence on newer generations, Paul's views on the changing face of form in poetry, his relationship with Liverpool now and the ways in which he includes the city or cadence of the accent in his work, and finally advice he would give to students who find it difficult to access poetry as an art form. Thanks again to Paul for putting up with my questions so early in the morning and providing ideas that I've been considering ever since. If you haven't already, subscribe to the show via Spotify, Apple or wherever you get your podcasts if you'd like to be made aware of when more educational chat like this becomes available. Alternatively, you can follow me on Twitter by searching for at ChrisJordanHK. Okay, Paul, uh, if you were given the unenviable task of deciding who uh, state-educated kids were to study in terms of poets or poems in the national curriculum, which names immediately come to mind and why? Um, yeah, I suppose, I suppose I'd always talk about the power of uh, recognition uh, to students, the value, you know, of finding poetry, which in some way chimes with uh, students' lived experience. Although it gets pretty complicated when when you begin to think about, you know, state-educated kids covers a multitude, really, you know, in terms of things like, I don't know, social class, ethnicity, gender, and so on, you know. I mean, when I was a kid, I must have found location to be really important and the value of, of a recognition of location it made a difference recognising the poetry was being written in the city that I was growing up in, you know, not just far off in the 19th century. And I remember reading the Liverpool poets and thinking, ah, you know, okay, you can do that here. Uh, you know, poetry is possible here. But I have to say, I do also remember thinking much later on, uh, where, was the Shakespeare? where was the Shakespeare? So... You know, maybe you can think about gateway poets, poets that lead us through some familiarity of theme or or place or voice towards the harder stuff. Sorry, this is a terrible analogy, but you know what I mean. But I think also sometimes we're attracted to complete difference, voices that aren't contemporary or immediately recognisable. You have to kind of always bear that in mind, I think. And then another way of thinking about it is we know poetry has a particular diction you know poetic diction which has changed over time and arguably we don't we don't have it anymore uh, or we're so close to it that we can't hear it whatever but I think teaching that difference is important the way language evolves and changes and I think offering a, a sense of it all still happening right here right now just down the road from you perhaps 
in a voice that's within earshot of, of your voice, of your own voice, is also really important. And yeah, turning all, turning all that into a curriculum would be an unenviable task, is an unenviable task. But I like the way poetry is uh, a long conversation, a big conversation, where you can imagine poets throughout time and space are in a kind of dialogue with each other and in dialogue with what's come before them, whether they're influenced by, by it, emulating it, reacting to it, subverting it, mm. even trying to rip it up and start again. So a sense of that big conversation, um, because the difficulty is that kids, actually humans in general, I guess, can be very entrenched in their present moment. And so the challenge is to make some sense of it all for them. And maybe the best way is to start from right now and then offer a sense of how and why we got here uh, and which might suggest where we could go next. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a fascinating answer. That like in terms of we had we had um, uh, a teacher at my my current school he uh, in Hong Kong and he he reached out to a poet uh, Sally Wen Mao who's I think she's American by birth but she's she's got like kind of ties to China and he managed to kind of set up a uh, a um, I don't know if it was Zoom or one of those things and speak directly to her with the kids. And he said just the kids were at, you know, an absolute standstill at the idea that you can actually talk to one of these people that you've studied um, and and ask them certain questions. And he said that the questions they asked were very insightful and stuff like that. So, yeah, I think the local voices thing is is definitely something which is pertinent to international teaching. But also if you are teaching at a comp in London or Liverpool or Manchester, it, it, it definitely speaks to individual kids. Uh, that is interesting what you said there about like a local voice or a modern voice, because um, you're kind of, I, I wouldn't go as far as to say on record, but you, your body of work certainly pays homage in a way to John Clare, who was writing in the, the 19th century. To what extent does um, the, the, the Mizzy or... Um, the boy from uh, the chemist is here to see you. Like, how much of that does it draw on him? Do you identify with, with him as someone who's from a working class education, given the fact that you come from Liverpool? Yeah, I mean, they sold him as the Northamptonshire peasant poet. Mm. You know, he was marketed, there was a vogue. For, for, for that kind of poetry or poets from that kind of uh, background. I, I mean, I suppose it wasn't the first thing that attracted me to Claire. Um, I have to say, the, I mean, the first thing would have just been, well, I mean, it would have been the poems, you know. I mean, mm. just reading, and, and I, I'm sorry, I can't remember which 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 poem was the first poem, the first Claire poem. It's highly likely to have been in an anthology I came across. And I guess it was his attention and focus Um the sense of a world being uncovered or brought to life, you know, the way he really notices uh, and prioritises little things that are surrounding him and he connects them all into a into this gorgeous sort of world picture. And I also like the way he used, lang- he used the language of his place, yeah. you know, all those dialect words for birds or, or for things. Um, and it wasn't until a bit later on that I began, I suppose I began to pick up on the way he was writing in the face of, of enormous change, uh, I mean, in fact, he was describing a crisis, a world that was under threat, um, in his case, because of, of the Enclosure Acts that were doing away with the, 
the commons, you know, the way land uh, is disposed for people um, and this open field system of agriculture. Um, that was all kind of in disintegration for Claire. He, he, it was his childhood kind of coincided with that. And also I liked the way he worked with the materials that were, you know, closest to hand. He took his cue from older poetry and traditional song and verse, anything he could get his hands on. It, it wasn't, it wasn't really a kind of formal education. It was a kind of, it was, it was a kind of fragmentary education. And a lot of it was picked up in, you know, he said that famous thing, I found the poems in, in the fields and only wrote them down. And um, um also, I'm, I'm kind of, I was interested in the way he was writing during a boom time for contemporary poetry, which might have something to do with the way he was marketed. Um, certainly, at least to begin with, because of romanticism and what was going on at the time in the lakes mm. down in London. And I suppose, yeah, I mean, thinking about this, I, I mean, it's a bit of a stretch, but I grew up in a place where people had been moved from the city centre out to the edges of the city. And so that world of fields and, and back lanes and farm and was suddenly right on our doorsteps. And then and then these places we just found ourselves slowly began to fall apart, you know, for a number of reasons. Uh, things began to break down. So there's something there that I'd recognize. This mm. I guess this encounter with a world beyond the urban, sure, but mainly that sense of a landscape that's changing very quickly. And it, I have to say, this must have happened all over the place, not, not just in Liverpool. So London, Glasgow, Birmingham, wherever, anywhere that saw these big urban clearances and social rehousing. It was a time of change and upheaval in terms of uh, social housing policy. And it, you have to remember as well, it coincided with a terrible deepening economic slump you know things became really kind of unsettled um and if that unsettledness you know coincided with your childhood as it did for lots of kids born in the 60s 70s maybe into the 80s in those kinds of places then i suppose you might have felt the wonder and the strangeness of that encounter with a world that lies just beyond the city just beyond its edges as, as i certainly did but you would have also felt the ground shifting beneath your feet. Um, and I think uncertainty and a deep unsettledness is, if you like, a big part of the working class experience mm. of those decades. And I think that chimes with Claire's situation. Mm, yeah, certainly. I think, I think also, I mean, it comes back to something you mentioned a few minutes ago about that kind of uh, tapping into the universal experience when you're preparing anthologies or like set texts for kids, you want to try and find something from the annals of history, which they can buy into. So that kind of, that definitely uh, resonates. Yeah. Um, coming back to examination boards or anthologies or whatever, I, I don't know whether this is just to be in vogue or to, to keep things fresh or whether it's a genuine um, sort of, uh, recognition of certain musicians as being on the cusp of being poets but the likes of Bob Dylan I think uh, I don't know if it's Patti Smith or Joni Mitchell but certainly Kendrick Lamar have found their way into the international baccalaureate's prescribed reading lists um, do you think this is indicative of poetry's waning influence on newer generations or is is that too much of a, a cynical way of looking at things are these people poets by another name do you think 
I don't know. I mean, I think it could be indicative of exam boards not wanting to yeah. seem to be out of touch or irrelevant or something. You, you have, you, have you ever listened to Bob Dylan or, you know, any of them and gone like, this is just, this is skirting like a fine line between poetry and, and music or is it, I don't know, myself, I'm not too sure. Well, I suppose there's two, there's, yeah, I guess there's two sides to this question. One is the relevance of poetry and its waning influence and the other is is song lyrics and poetry. And I think, I suppose for the first part of that, I, I suppose what I'd say is when you've been knocking about as a scribbler for as long as I have, what, what I've noticed is poetry is always on the decline. <laughs> and it's always, <laughs> and it's, but it's also always having a comeback. You know, it's always under threat from something. So, you know, it's becoming too accessible and easy or it's talking to itself and it's, you know, it's become too obscure. It's, it's become elitist. Uh, it says nothing to me about my life. Um, and, and put that next to this standards are always slipping as we, you know, we're constantly told kids have got shorter attention spans. Social media, for example, is ruining their focus and their wider curiosity you know in my day it was we didn't know we were born we were lazy and lucky and on and on it goes you know the two things kind of wrap around each other so it's it's actually reassuring you know to hear people in the distant past complaining about the decline of poetry I was reading somebody the other day writing in the 17th century really having a go at the, at the, the new generation as was of poets coming through and then being useless and um, and lapsed in some way, you know. Um, but, I mean, I think what you've got to remember is poetry will most likely still be here long, long after we've gone, Chris, uh, you know, providing there's anybody left to read it or and to hear it. Um, the song lyrics and poetry debate, yeah, that's, I mean, that's kind of a separate thing and it's, that's been rumbling on forever, you know. It's so interesting, this. Why, you know, why can't song lyrics be regarded as poetry? Why can't a poem be set to music? Where's the line between the two things? Is there a line? Uh, all that kind of thing. And oh, what did I say about this? I mean, I guess things get classified or declassified as poetry all the time. So it's tricky and possibly pointless being hard and fast about a definition. But I'd say that the difference between say Keats and Dylan is Bob Dylan that is is that Keats didn't have a guitar and a mouth organ or a band behind him and so his words on the page have to provide their own rhythm and melody and they have to kind of generate their own musical context um mm. and also if you think about it great songs can have great lyrics but they don't need great lyrics you know, if you think about it, a lyric can be a kind of uh, like a kind of vowel performance, you know, with the texture and phrasing of the singer's voice more to the fore. It could be doing all kinds of interesting things with, you know, elongating vowels, for example, um, using the voice as an instrument. So so great lyrics don't, don't necessarily, you know, result in great songs. It, there's something else going on there. And you can all, oh, the only way to think about it is in terms of the role of the poets, you know, the um, the singer-songwriter, you could imagine in a way supplanting the poet who's writing for the page. So this raised voice and this lyrical authority 
this uh, speaking up for a constituency or a generation, whatever. And and also then to just make to muddy the waters even more. You know, you've got the romantic model of the doomed poet, the doomed mm. figure. You know, all of this is in there somewhere. So it's always a really, really difficult comparison. And saying there's a difference doesn't demote song lyrics and great songs. And if we're being completely honest, there's probably more of those on most of our cultural playlists. Um, mm. I forgot who said it, actually, but if you, were, if you were serious about making poetry more relevant um, and influential among uh, younger people, the best thing to do would be to ban it. You know, <laughs> make some volumes of poetry contraband or something and just watch it, watch it become incredibly popular all of a sudden. I'd say it's interesting, like that word resurgence, actually, in terms of what you said like, over the, the 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 years that you've been writing. I mean, it's it's quite a sort of cliche or hackneyed exa- example, but when Biden got the presidency and you had that young student who came out and gave the poem, and all the all the teachers kind of on on Twitter and those things jumped on it and said, "Look, there's still relevance and and all this kind of thing," um, and and you would hope you would hope that there's some sort of resurgency with like younger people who identify with her out of that. But yeah, I've never thought about it that way. That's a really interesting way of thinking about it, that it goes in peaks and troughs. And of course the irony, I suppose is like, if you listen to, if you've read like any interviews with the likes of like uh, Kendrick Lamar, or if you've read like the Chronicles volume one or whatever that Bob Dylan books called, they, they all talk about the fact that they were raised and fed on poetry of you know 19th century 20th century or even before that so there's a certain irony that that's where they've kind of got their their formative training in in, in music from um uh with, with regard to like contemporary views on poetry or um more specifically on form in poetry uh Stephen fry got a lot of traction in uh, a few years ago in his attempts to generate uh like a neo-traditional approach to rhyme and meter. Um, to what extent, as, as, a, as a poet yourself and as, as a professor um, at the university, to what extent were you aware of this kind of like populist, neo-traditional kind of um, thing happening? And from your point of view, what is the place of like rhyme and meter nowadays? Mo- most of the time when we pick up the textbooks, it's like, Free verse is the go-to, you know, form for most poets in the twenty and twenty-first, twenty-first uh, century. Um, what's your view on that? Like, how how do you perceive it? Ooh, sorry, I'm making these noises at the beginning because they're such good questions, <laughs> questions, and they're, they're not easy to answer uh, economically. Okay. But they're, they're fantastic questions. They go to the heart of of so many current uh, concerns so far as poetry goes. Um, Okay, I think poems, one thing we can say, I, I think and I all agree on this, poems put language under some kind of formal pressure, and that formal pressure might take its cue from received forms, you know, sonnets, villanelles, and all the rest of it, uh, or it might hybridise these and do recycle them or upcycle them, or... It could develop its own sense of shape and, and formal limits, but e- either way, whatever way, it's putting language under some kind of formal pressure. Um, so to think about that, you can find great sonnets being written today, and you can find really bad sonnets being written today. 
Um, I think rhyme or traditional form or metrical shapes don't guarantee the poem. They don't just because your poem rhymes doesn't mean it's it's going to be better. That it's it, it's not a, a, a guarantee of, of of achieving a poem. Um, I guess people sometimes think of formal poetry as a thing which kind of misses the point. You know, all poems have form, a, a shape, and a bearing of some sort, the way they carry themselves, which is which is entangled or should be entangled with their meaning or their effectiveness. I mean, it might be easier. I, I sometimes say to find myself saying this to students, it might be easier or more accurate to think of organised and disorganised poems, which kind of gets you around this debate on formal poetry as a thing which is traditional, as opposed to so-called free verse, which isn't, uh, which then can lead to, to all kinds of things. Like, you know, formal verse is somehow deeply conservative and reactionary, opposed to free verse, which is uh, progressive. But I'm more interested in, uh, just to take one example, I, I suppose the way uh, metrical poetry and formal shapes tend to, we tend to find those in most cultures. And it might be worth asking why that is. You know, I, I remember there was an essay written by uh, who, Ernst Poppel, who's a neuroscientist, and Frederick Turner, who's a poet. So you get this neuroscientist and this poet writing this really kind of interesting essay and appeared a long time ago, I think in the 1980s. And it looked at how metrical formal poetry occurs in most human cultures across the planet. And they, they found that the average length of a typical line of poetry in each of those traditions tends to be, tends to be the same, tends to be about three seconds long when it's mm -hmm. read aloud. And so they argued that we've all got this auditory uh, information like a buffer that links poetry and shape to memory and that there's something neurological or physiological about the kinds of metrical shapes that have developed over time. So, you know, a poem is a human integration of time, a series of present moments, if you like. So, mm. I mean, this has been challenged, this paper, since it was published. And, you know, there's all kinds of ways in which you can see it might be difficult to prove um, you know, the layout of a poem on the page doesn't, you know, doesn't always indicate the way in which its author would read it from line to line, for example, which is a, which is a whole other conversation. But one thing to take from this is the sense of, of this, I don't know, this like global archive of formal poetry. And, and you can see this in anthologies like that, that book Jerome Rothenberg did, Technicians of the Sacred, all those charms and lullabies and songs and spells, which you could argue are kinds of formal poetry from all over the planet. And I think this is interesting, the way there are, there are many traditions. And I'd also wonder why, you know, why have some metrical shapes, like the sonnets, you know, from, from a European tradition, if you like, why have they proved so durable? And I, and I also, just to kind of keep going on this, I suppose I, I think modernism has its own traditions now anyway. You know, it's been around for a long time. It has its own nostalgias and shibboleths, I think. And, I, I, you know, I don't know where we are right now. I think where we are right now is a really variegated place where all kinds of approaches and attractions are, are, uh, are being played with and engaged with. And you have to remember, too, that at the, right now there's a general move towards redress in the air. You know, things have been have been challenged. Um, for example, the Western canon is in the process, you know, hopefully of being uh, decolonialized. So it's a very fluid picture.
But I, I mean, just to, to, sorry, I'm wittering on here, but I'd hope we could move beyond this kind of old binary between formal and free verse. It, it, it gets quite, I don't know, I've, as as I've got older, you know, I've found it to, to get, you know, it's getting pretty boring. And I yeah. think engaging with metrical shapes and rhyme and traditional form doesn't have to mean simply replicating them. You know, where's the fun in that? Yeah. Um, but it doesn't have to mean being in a state of constant flux either, you know, making it new and then obsolete again with this, you know, the kind of ridiculous churn rate. Um, I think in the end, the good stuff is always rare and and completely unpredictable, actually, anyway. But it will always have something formally integral and interesting about it, you know, whatever its relationship to tradition. When you say that you you, you talk about like organised and disorganised, what what does that mean in a practical like sense? I suppose some poems um, they've got a, a dissonance between what they're saying and how they're saying it, oh, and you, you would like to think that there's a different way that this could be said um, in order to kind of encapsulate or or to do more work, more interesting with work work with what's being said. Um, and sometimes it can be a tiny thing, you know, a tiny thing could be with, with a really good poem. You you will often look at it and think, you know, take, move one word, you know, change one line, break, even just alter the punctuation and there'd be diminishments, you know, ah, things that are yeah. falling apart. Um, and that goes for things that have got, you know, raggedy edges and, and don't have regular line lengths, for example, just as much as it goes for, a, you know, some boxy shape like a sonnet. Mm. Yeah. I, I, I had, um, the, uh, we had um, Seamus Heaney on one of the, the as always, like um, which thankfully um, on one of the anthologies this year. And uh, this lad who sort of like shy, retiring type, quite sporty, not really into literature or at least didn't seem to be. And he, he came up to me with doing that midterm break, which like everyone and, you know, the dog has studied at some point in school. And he said to me, like he was asking me, um, why why hasn't he got like a regular rhyme scheme sir and uh i said well i suppose you know and i sort of like clamored for a um an explanation and sort of like put one together and he's like and the rhyme scheme and all this sort of thing and then he said this brilliant thing that i've never heard and like i've only been teaching like 10 years but he sort of said that bit at the end where it actually rhymes i think it's like a rhyming couplet at the end he said, it's almost a bit like, um, you know, when a camera pulls focus in the film and you realise like how much shit they're in. He didn't say shit. I went, yeah, that's exactly what it's for. Don't write that in the essay, in the exam. Like, but that's exactly what it's for. Like that's, that's, it's exactly there to make that, to make that impression. Um, I always think he's like the perfect one. You, the, 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 somewhere between, there being pure formal poetry, you know, every kind of um, every syllable counts and every line counts versus complete free verse. He's a really good one to start with Heaney. Uh, him and there's a, there's a couple of other ones as well, just in terms of showing how they can manipulate it. They are aware of how it works and they're not lazy or they're not kind of uh, in a rush to get it done. It's not like they need to sort of um, come up with it on off the top of their head, but he's, he's quite a good one to represent. How that, That's such a nice explanation of it. By the way, that definition you had where it's, it's language put under pressure. It's language under a, a certain amount of duress. And then um, we kind of reap the benefit of that as, as a reader. Um, 
with regards to sort of your relationship with Liverpool now, I'm not sure, like kind of, um, you, you obviously teach at like Lancaster Uni and that's, I don't know, um, about an hour's drive, is it like 90 minute drive? So I'm not sure if you still live in like within, within reach of the city, but coming back to something you said earlier about how that, you know, your, your upbringing and your relationship with the city informs what you think about and what you write about. Do you still find ways to include the city in your writing or, consider the cadence of the accent when you read and um yeah sorry when you read your work aloud um at festivals and things like that yeah i i mean my relationship with the city is kind of baked in you know you can hear it right now um on my tongue you know my voice its accent is with me for the duration i'm i'm fantastically interested in not just the, the, the liverpool the scouts accent but any accents i'm always interested in what people do with their accents when they're in the place where the accent forms and then when they move away from it, you know, so, so whether that's a great distance or whether that's just down the road, but into another kind of, you know, language group or, or, or slang picture or, you know, type of accent, um, whether they dispose of it, um, take the, the edges up, file the edges off it, if you like, or kind of hang on to it. Whatever happens, I'm always kind of interested in that process. Um, I, I mean, I guess so. If you're talking about my relationship with Liverpool, Liverpool as a subject, I mean, in one sense, I don't have much much say in the matter um, <laughs> because it's, it's here it is, you know, here I am. But I mean, I guess in another sense, I do thematically, you know, I can choose to write about it head on, if you like, as a, as a subject. And yeah, you know, I do still go back to my early uh, life there. Though I've lived away from Liverpool for much longer now than, than I lived there and I write about other places and other things just as much, possibly if not more. Actually, I've never actually gone and looked, but I suppose so. Yeah, I suppose any accent is interesting when you think about it in terms of poetry. I've also, I mean, I guess I find it fascinating what happens to any when any version of English, you know, any version in terms of uh, accent or demotic or dialect meets something like form, like traditional metrical shapes in poetry. What we were just talking about. Um, and I think poets like, you know, Tony Harrison, for example, from Yorkshire, had already begun exploring this a few decades ago. You know, what happens when a voice from the edges occupies the structures of the centre? You could think of it in that way, if you like. Um, he, he called it the lousy leasehold poetry, you know. So there's that sense almost of squatting in the metre cupboard of poetry, which I, I, I find find really fascinating. And all kind of, when you do it, the act of doing it is 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 so interesting. All kinds of things happen at the very local level, you know, even at the level of phonemes and little elisions you make and stuff. Uh, when you allow your, you know, quote-unquote non-standard voice, whatever that is, to mix it up with something like a line of trochees or iams or whatever, and there's something, uh, I don't know, something gorgeously messy or unpredictable about it that I, that I like. Yeah. So, I mean, my, you know, my voice was shaped by this matrix of Irish and Welsh and Scottish immigration from the middle of the 19th century onwards, but, but also with a lot of pop culture and feedback thrown in as well. But, but you know, so many versions of spoken English, so many stories and meeting places that kind of nucleate in us in different ways. And again, it's interesting hearing what happens when these voices encounter that resistance of a medium, you know, some kind of, like we were just talking about some kind of formal pressure. Mm. It's bizarre, actually. I have to say that um, 
yeah like living abroad and that kind of thing you are kind of more um if you're not aware of what happens to your voice and the cadence of your, uh, your accent and all that kind of thing then certainly your family are only too fond of uh, reminding you when you come back I found uh uh, someone someone asked me for a book recommendation a few years back and I'd been teaching a book about um, uh, like Persepolis, which like loads of IB schools teach uh, about like um, a girl who lives in uh, Iran. And because I'd kind of, uh, when, I'm, when I teach it, I like lapse into some sort of like, I don't even know what you would call it, some sort of like RP Northern accent. I'm not sure like how it sounds, but... Um, I said uh, I kind of gave her the blurb like my auntie the blurb and um, I said yeah it's about this girl living in Iran and everyone leaned in you know all 13 people leaned in and oh Iran Iran sorry I'm so sorry um, and that was a delightful uh, moment but yeah I that's um, yeah we I had a discussion a discussion about this actually when we, we were studying um, Plath I think a few years ago with a girl whose dad was German mum's from Hong Kong she's got an American accent and she said is there even any point us discussing meter when you and I sort of talk so differently and I was like yeah maybe not um but um yeah like you say always always very interesting to see what happens with certain kind of dialects and accents when when it when poetry comes to play um finally then uh, something that students get very kind of stressed out about maybe teachers too too a similar extent is how to tackle unseen poetry, new poetry, if we don't want to see it in such a transactional way as, you know, an unseen poem on, on an exam. If you get given a poem anthology as a student and you're asked to, um, you know, kind of tackle it on your own for a little bit, what, what advice would you give to students who find it difficult to access poetry as an art form or just are starting out as novice readers of poetry? How, how best to, to, um, to properly comprehend it? Yeah, it's another really, really good question and in, an important question, I guess. I've thought about this a lot over the years. Um, and I, I mean, I often go back to my own experience of, of encountering it or my own kind of conception of it when I was when I was just you know um at school perhaps and um I don't know I, I tell you I love the word browse um <laughs> do people still browse I, I guess they do in, in in different kind of um fields and and uh I mean when I was very young I loved browsing libraries and bookshops basically and that way you discovered stuff completely by accident um it's strange to think actually what would have happened if I turned right instead of left, you know, down some aisle of books on uh, on any given day. It's actually scary to think how, how much might depend on chance. Um, I, and I guess now I'm, with the availability of, of things and material online, you could argue, you know, it's relatively easy to find vast archives of poems and poetry related uh, materials and, I don't know, maybe click and drag is just as surprising and, and subject to, to chance. But I'd say I'd say the most important thing is to find those poets or, or individual poems, because they're two different things, it might just be a poem that really um you know that really rock your world, that have, have some kind of effect on you, a bodily effect, hairs on the back of the neck, lump in the throat effect. Uh, because those poems are important for you. They're telling you something 
Um, and you really need, I, I even say this sometimes to students, you really need to fall in love with a particular poem or a, it could be a poet's work to the degree that you're carrying the book around with you or, you know, you're blue tacking the poem to the side of your computer screen or by your bed or whatever. Mm. Seek out those poems, um, find those poems. Um, often gifts are important as well. And I'm only saying that because often our early encounters with, with poetry, as you say, are transactional or that, you know, they're in the context of an exam or that, you know, um, and I, th I think just giving a student, so you might like this, or just, but mm -hmm. in a very kind of informal way, just kind of have a look at this. Because I remember, I remember people doing that for me, you know, decades ago, and it having an enormous influence. It's not just the poem, it's the, it's the fact that they thought I'd find this interesting. Yeah, I think it's always about connection. I think, I think the gift is really important. So yeah, seek out those poems, fall in love with poetry, try not to be too waylaid by fashions or you know, what 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 the kind of majority of people are saying ought you ought to be reading and writing. Trust your own attractions and fascinations. And also finally, remember, you know, it is meant to be fun. Um, <laughs> and if you I mean, you know, if you want me to kind of legitimize this or I'll drag Wordsworth into it. Wordsworth has this lovely phrase, the grand elementary principle of pleasure. And on some level, there's part of the mix you know, part of the tangle of things that are going on here, pleasure is, has to be actually, has to be, it's vital, has to be a part of that. So remember to enjoy it and 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 that it seriously is meant to be fun. You're meant to be having serious fun. By extension, do you think it's um, um, all right for like um, a, a, a student to receive a particular poem and under certain academic in a certain like academic situation to completely pan it just to say this doesn't this is this is false this doesn't speak to me this that and the other i think if you go out there and buy you know a book of simon armitage poems or whatever and whether you like them or dislike them you know fair enough whatever how do you feel about that though like in, if 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 you're presented with a poem i think sometimes students feel like there's a right answer like we're supposed to, uh, uh, God love it, like appreciate a poem just because the teachers put it down in front of them. Do you think it's an acceptable um, response to say this is no, this 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 just doesn't work for me? Well, I, I think so because that happens in life. I mean, I'm, I mean, students yeah. is part of life, but if you, if you say beyond the educational context. That happens all the time, doesn't it? I mean, how often do I do I read books of poetry? And I mean, I don't I don't uh, melodramatically chuck them across the room or anything. But more <laughs> often than not, I think I'm not going to read any more of this. It's not doing it for me. Which is just an honest first response. I mean, you often could go back to these things and think, oh, what a, what an idiot! You know, why, why couldn't I see that? That can often happen over time. Actually, we're talking, you know, years or even decades. Students don't have that luxury, you know, it's presented to them in, in a, they've got this tiny window, you know, if here it is and you, what you're getting is a, is a reaction, you know, but it's a perfectly legitimate re reaction, I think, especially if it's kind of framed and it's, it's contextualised. It's, it's not saying anything to me because I find its diction kind of so, it's beyond earshot of my voice and I'm, mm. I'm, finding, I'm really struggling with that. I'm really struggling to find a way into this. And equally, you'll find students who, are, like I said earlier on in, in the interview, you'll find students who are kind of attracted to the difference for whatever reason. You know, I've often 
found students to kind of, you know, I don't know. They, I've, I've had students who kind of love that kind of um, romantic diction or even earlier than that, you know, sort of 17th century poetry where all the syntax is sort of mangled, you know. Mm. Um, they actually like that. You know, they, they, they find that kind of poise in language to be kind of, and it's I mean, so different to the way we speak and use language now, but they find it attractive for whatever reason, you know. So there's an unpredictability about it that I, I find fascinating. But yes, it, it's got to be legitimate on some level because we do that all the time in life, don't we? We find mm-hmm. poems that kind of pushes away and then we, we we might fall for them, but but students don't have the, the luxury of time in which to discover that. Yeah, absolutely. Um I think in terms of that 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 just that idea of like it's it is supposed to be if um like linking it back to real life or linking it back to day-to-day life like poetry should be as much a part of day-to-day life as anything else that we care to pass judgment over and I think um framing it in those terms is a really useful way to get it away from this idea of well don't forget to mention the title and don't forget to mention the form and don't forget to mention i do think taking a personal approach to it is 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 possibly the most um yeah valuable thing you can do anyway um last thing i've got to say is thank you very much for giving up your time today paul really really appreciate being able to speak to someone who um uh knows you know uh, quite a I i'm not going to read your kind of blandishments back to you that um you know the guardian <laughs> and all and all those lot have uh, said but i'm sure i can save that for the the write-up on the podcast but it's it's an absolute pleasure and a privilege to speak to someone who's um writing i think i've enjoyed i remember kind of a, a couple of the lads uh, when we were in your class at uni poured over uh, your first collection of poetry uh, to see if we, you knew what you were talking about and um, I've kind of like followed you on the Guardian since then so thank you very much for giving up your time today to share um, your ideas and your opinions Oh it's an absolute pleasure Chris honestly and it was a lovely chat and great questions and fantastic to catch up with you be too long <laughs> Yeah that's right okay um, well enjoy the rest of your day and thank you very much <laughs>